welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my co-host today is Dima Strakowski, Associate Professor of Art at the University of Kentucky in the School of Art and Visual Studies. And and as you can imagine, given my co-host, we've got a, a bit of an a change in subject matter today. Our, our guest today is Tim Schneider, who is a art business reporter at Artnet News, and we're going to be talking about his reporting on the art world, as well as his excellent book, which I've actually relied on quite a bit in some of my scholarship, The Great Reframing, How Technology Will and Won't Change the Gallery System Forever, and there'll be a link to the book in in the podcast if you want to take a look at it. So welcome, Tim. Thanks, Brian. So uh, such a pleasure to have you talking about the art world and the art market today. Um, maybe we can we can start by framing the conversation around your book. So what is the great reframing? Um, you know what what exactly do you see as the factors that are shifting in the gallery sector today? What kinds of things are people expecting to happen and kind of what's your take on the likelihood of those expectations being being realized? So the spine of the book is all about this question of disruption, which is a word that you hear constantly now, not just in the art world, but in practically every sector of the economy. Um, There have been a lot of people with a lot of different interests in the business who have talked about disrupting the art world, and I think that the claim is oversold pretty dramatically. I think that the... My purpose in writing the book is that I think that you you have these two communities. You have the sort of tech-focused community, and you have the art-focused community. And the reality is that they're generally pretty separate, and neither one of them really understands the other very well. And I think in order to really understand the way that technology has the potential to change things, you have to really understand a lot of the quirks and nuances and, frankly, insanities of how the art business currently works. Because the the sort of primary assumption, I think, of a lot of these would-be disruptors is that the art market works just like any other retail market. And so there's this great crime of commerce out there that the art business hasn't been reshaped already in the ways that things like typical retail or electronics or whatever else have have been reshaped. Um, And it's just the art business has a lot of parallels to high-end retail especially, Mm -hmm. but it also has enough particularities to it that you can't one-to-one map your expectation for one sector of the economy onto that particular sector of the economy. So the book is a way of, of kind of playing out how things actually are and what that means for the people who are suggesting one form of technological change or another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one takeaway I got from the book was this kind of interesting uh, dialectic between you know people thinking they're going to break in and disrupt, like you said, and then observations about the kind of remarkable resiliency of many of these sort of art market institutions. And I was wondering maybe for for listeners who aren't necessarily 
that familiar with how the art market works, you could talk about some of the contexts in which people are able to engage with the art market, maybe in particular recognizing, as you do in the book, that there is the art market proper and then kind of people and people buying and selling the art that it really isn't part of the art market at all. Um, and then the difference between the primary and the, and the secondary markets in art. Right. So um, the primary versus secondary market I'll cover first. Mm -hmm. So those are terms that essentially mean this. The primary market is what people in the business use to refer to art that's being sold for the first time. That's why it's primary. Um, this effectively means or has meant for many, many years gallery sales and private dealer sales. Um, more and more that's changing because now you have online platforms for selling art and some other sort of agents that are out there that don't effectively call themselves gallerists, but um, by and large, when we say primary market, we're still talking about the gallery market, mm. effectively. The secondary market, as you may or may not have guessed based on that first explanation, is just the resale market. Mm. It's just a fancy word for resale. So that covers the auction sector, primarily, and um, also covers private dealers reselling work that they buy themselves in other contexts. And so that's sort of the first dichotomy. The other one is this difference between what I generally refer to as the either the traditional art market or the legacy art market versus mm -hmm. other newer alternative forms of selling art. And the one of the most important things to understand about the way that the art market works is that it is very much a business of institutions and social connections. You can't just be somebody who waltzes in off the street with a bunch of money in your pocket and immediately set up and start selling quality artwork to quality people. It's just not the way that it works. The people who have a lot of power and a lot of and have made a lot of money in this business, have generally done it through a very intricately managed or developed, or in some cases inherited system of contacts and connections of people who are also involved in the, the sale or the trade or the display of, of artworks. And so the most gung-ho idea of the disruptors, that they're just going to waltz into this business tomorrow, and say, I've got this new technology, or I've got this new business model, and let me just impose this on you and show you, art world people, how this really works, um, usually have a pretty rude awakening on the other side of it. Because there are a lot of rules that they don't know, um, unspoken rules in a lot of cases, and there are a lot of, um, I think honestly, this is maybe a, a, a good segue, but I think that there are also certain expectations of the way that things are going to work from a fairness or um, even, let's just say, an ethical standpoint mm -hmm. that I think people are surprised by. I mean, I don't want to use the old bringing a knife to a gunfight mm -hmm. analogy, but it's sort of like thinking that you're meeting another guy in an alley, but he's actually a bare-knuckle boxer. <laughs> all right, all right. So maybe to, 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 to just make it a little, even a little bit more concrete for people how this works, 
I'm, I'm hearing you saying that breaking into the art market from the intermediary perspective, in other words, becoming a seller in the market is not the kind of piece of cake move that a lot of disruptors want to believe it is. What about from a buyer's perspective? Right? Let, let's say I wanted to buy a work of art by a hot artist, by like say, Carrie James Marshall or Katie Noland, right? Can I, just, can I just walk into the gallery and say, hey, how much is that one? I love it, I want to take it home with me. Right. The short answer is no. Um, and I, as by way of background, I should mention that I, I came into this whole thing through various jobs in the gallery sector. I worked in the gallery sector in Los Angeles for about eight years, all told. And I am not somebody who came from an art world family or an art world background. Mm -hmm. So I was just a kid who went to, went to the University of Chicago and ended up getting a job as a front desk assistant at a what we would refer to generally as a mid-sized gallery. So not one of the one of the mega galleries like Gagosian or David Zwerner, et cetera, um, but not one that's just a sort of super scrappy artists are strictly coming out of MFA programs kind of situation either. You're somewhere in the middle. You're dealing with artists who have some kind of institutional pedigree. They've been around for a while, and they may have varying degrees of success, but they have a presence in the marketplace. So... When I became a front desk assistant at this gallery, the one of the primary lessons that I was taught very early on was that my job was to intake maximum information and give out minimum information, <laughs> which was completely counter to basically every other job I had ever had in my entire life. And granted, I come from the Midwest, so I'm also just sort of like genealogically disposed to trying to help people on some mm -hmm. level. Um, so this was kind of a culture shock to me, and it manifested itself in all kinds of different ways, the most direct and kind of most frequent of which involved when genuinely interested, totally nice, unassuming people would walk in off the street, into the gallery, take a look around, and then come up and ask me, well, how much is that piece or this piece or the other piece? I couldn't answer that question. It wasn't because I didn't know the answers. I literally, the, the irony of me telling them that I don't handle pricing information, or I, don't, I don't have that information for you, uh -huh. is that I was literally sitting there with a database that had our entire inventory on it that had prices listed. I could have looked uh -huh. up any damn thing that we had. <laughs> but um, just, just to throw this in there... Right, but there would be difference in price depending on who the buyer is. Right. Also, right? Yeah, yeah. That's 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 right. jumping at a little bit, but we can. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a it's a good place to go to next. Yeah. So one of the one of the ironies about the way that the primary market works is that the people with the most money tend to get the best deals. Like the <laughs> the biggest discounts go to the people who need them least, mm -hmm. and. That sounds crazy on the surface, but there is a very good business reason behind it, which is that one of the ways that an artist raises their profile in the art business is through not just how many works they're selling, but who they're selling those works to or who their gallery is, is selling those works to. And in fact, this is such a particular and important concern that we don't even really talk about selling things to people. It, there's an actual word for this, which is that every you're, you're placing work of the collector, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but is also very telling because uh -huh. you're you're curating the buyers as much as you're curating the actual show that you're putting on. Because, and I've seen this happen. 
once you say, oh, well, this artist has recently been collected by, insert, well-known collector's name here, all of a sudden that completely changes the perception of other buyers that you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. Like it's very much a who else has said yes already sort of culture to it. So in that sense, who you're placing the work with is so important that you're willing to give extraordinary deals to people sometimes purely so that you, the gallerist, can then say afterward, well, Collector X just bought a work. And you will make enough money, and this is the kind of short-term versus long-term issue, like the short-term sacrifice you're making will pay off in the long run because you will end up making, if things go well, enough money through the sales that are sort of juiced by that initial deal for you to make that same initial deal every time. It's so weird because it sounds suspiciously like venture capital. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's like you want to have the big shot hedge fund coming in and being an early investor as a sign that your business is going to do well in the future. But how do I get to be that buyer? How do I get to be the person on the list? <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's it's a complicated answer. I mean, this, this ends up playing out to some extent within the context of the book because there's been this very elusive search going on in the art business for several years now for this magical being called the quote-unquote tech collector, <laughs> who is a somebody who's made their money in Silicon Valley and theoretically could be spending a lot of money on artwork, but so far hasn't been. And there's been a lot of time spent trying to figure out who this person is or who this type is and how the art business can finally tap them and uh, get them into the kind of pool of buyers. Um, that's I don't want to go too deep into that because it's a whole other side mm-hmm. conversation that we could have, but um, the, the people who really want to be involved but haven't been up to this point, generally speaking, in the past, there has been a whole sort of social network that you have to integrate yourself with before you can actually make any significant purchases. Um, mm-hmm. That's falling away to some extent because of kind of larger changes that we can talk about in the economy and who has how much money and et cetera, et cetera. But um, in the past, it's been as much about sort of proving yourself to be in it for the long haul before you're allowed to get access to the really, really good stuff. So for instance, um, there are literal conversations happening by certain gallerists who have, say, one hot artist. But, of course, they have another several artists who aren't hot at the moment. But the demand will be high enough for the hot artist's work that the gallerist can literally tell people who want that work, well, you have two options. We're really only selling this work to people who will buy two works and promise to donate one to an institution. (laughs) So that's one kind of deal. Right. But... More novice collectors don't usually get that deal. Mm -hmm. The deal that they're sometimes offered instead is, well, okay, you want the work by the hot artist, but I had this other hot artist, not hot artist, excuse me, and we would really like to get them some sales too. So if you buy a work by this artist that no one is talking about, 
<laughs> that will tell us that you're serious enough that we will then consider allowing you to buy the work of the artist that you actually want to buy. Wow. Wow. Okay. This is very strange. <laughs> but then they can turn around to another collector and say that such and such already bought the work. There's a demand for the artist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. I mean, this, wow. this, and then we can go from there into the whole concept of wait lists, which is a okay, whole well, other what, entity. What, what is this? A yeah. wait list? Yeah. Yeah. So wait lists are a kind of system or a mechanism that's been devised in the art market. It's it's generally credited to Mary Boone in the 80s as being the first one to really do this. But the idea is that demand for an artist is so great that it outstrips supply. And so you have people coming in who want to buy an artist's work, but there isn't any available. And so you basically get put on what exactly what it sounds like. It's a wait list. It says, okay, well, when the next one of these becomes available, you will be the next one to get it. That sounds fine in principle. Where it starts to get dicey is in how much that spiel actually matches reality and then how the list itself is adjudicated. Uh -huh. So do you get do you get to see this list so you know where you are on no. it? <laughs> no. 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 First Some, off somehow I suspected as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um First off, there may or may not actually be a list. That's that's <laughs> the first point. Um, but assuming that there is such a list, um, then the next question becomes, well, is there actually enough, like, does the list need to exist? Mm -hmm. Is there actually enough work that's that could be sold and it's just being held back, or are we actually waiting for the artist to make more? Um and then let's assume that it, that it's totally on the up and up, and we really are waiting for the artist to produce more work so then it can be sold to more people. Then the question becomes, okay, well, is the list being, I guess, adjudicated in order, or are other considerations allowing people to effectively jump the line? Right. And in most cases, because of what we talked about before, in terms of how important the profile of the given collector can be to that artist's prospects or the gallery's prospects, then if you, Brian L. Fry, man off the street, who have admirably amassed a certain amount of wealth, are actually first on the list, but, say, the Rubels, who are major collectors um, based in Florida, if they come onto the list and they're second, I would generally bet that the next time a piece becomes available, the Rubels are actually going to get that work, even though you're technically first on the list. So right. there's a lot of um, funny business that can play out in terms of uh, how these things get prioritized. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is all very strange, right? Because economists, for example, usually like to say that markets are a mechanism for communicating information through price signals. And it seems to me the market you're describing is working very hard to not communicate information through through price signals. And so I'm wondering, a little hypothetical here for you, right? Imagine I'm lucky enough, I'm well-known enough, that I can walk into the gallery and buy one of those works by a really hot artist. If I turn around the next day and take that to Sotheby's and put it on sale, am I going to make my money back? Am I likely to get more money? Or am, I, am I likely to make less money on reselling it? Like, how closely does the secondary market price match 
the primary market sales price, typically, anyway? Well, there is no real typical situation. I mean, that's okay. that's the probably annoying answer to that question, but it's, <laughs> it's the reality. I mean, the context in which this generally comes up is when the market is generally on an upswing and there is a particular subset of artists out there who are seen as being particularly desirable. Um, we just kind of most recently saw this with a group of artists that were somewhat pejoratively referred to as zombie formalists. <laughs> and uh, the, the zombie formalist name came from the idea that uh, formalism referred to, uh, generally in this particular case, a, a type of abstraction that generally came out of the post-war era in New York and was championed by a, a critic named Clement Greenberg. Um, a, a lot of artists that you would know would fall into this kind like of, a, like Jackson Pollock, for instance, Frank de Kooning, right. So um, these artists, though, that we're talking about now were mostly young white men fresh out of MFA programs who were making works that ostensibly could have been made back then because they're governed by the same principles, um, most of which are, are sort of about the process of making a painting, like the process of making the painting becomes obvious when you look at what the painting is. Mm -hmm. Um, but because there's no actual new ideas in it, it's this idea of, of a movement that was dead has now come back to life, and so you have the zombie formalists okay. instead of just kind of uh, traditional abstract expressionists. Anyway, um, I bring all this up because there was a huge boom for several of these artists' work between beginning in about 2011 and from an outsider's perspective continuing into about 2015. And this is when the art market started to talk about this character called the Art Flipper. Now, the Art Flipper is a collector, or a buyer at least, who essentially buys the work primarily, if not strictly, for the sake of making a short-term profit on it. So it's the old... George Soros trick of when I see a bu when I see a bubble I buy that bubble because that's the way I make money. Mm -hmm. It's all predicated on the uh, the infamous greater fool theory, where as long as you have an asset, even if you don't believe in the asset, but if you know that there's somebody else out there who does, and you can sell it to them for a higher price than what you bought it for, even if you think the asset itself is shit, you should still just buy it and sell it as quickly as you can, and you'll make money on it. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of a certain number of buyers started to do this, and they were mostly buyers who didn't have a pedigree in the art market before. They were mostly new money type people. Mm -hmm. And this is important because there are these sorts of unwritten rules in the art market about how these things work. And one of those unwritten rules is that if you're somebody who buys a work from an up-and-coming artist from a gallery, and then you decide that you want to sell that work later on, what you're supposed to do is go back to the gallery that you sold it from and say, hey, look, I no longer am in love with this thing. Would you sort of be my agent, either buy it from me directly or be my agent in finding a, a new buyer for it? And nine times out of ten, that can that can happen. It may take a long time, but it'll, it'll happen. Um, of course, it also means that the gallerist is going to either end up making money from you or that they're going to get a good enough deal on what they buy it from you for, that they know that they can do the same thing that we were just talking about, and they mm -hmm. can just sell it to somebody else for more. Um, so 
so the art flipper, quote unquote, uh, was a character who just said, I'm not going to play by that rule. I'm just going to get the work, and if I know that there's a better market for it out there, I'm just going to take it directly to the auction house, or I'm going to sell it to somebody else myself. Um, and this became a sort of gigantic controversy where all of a sudden you had these artists who were getting work sold two or three times in the span of a couple of years, and it was drastically inflating prices for these guys, mostly guys. And um, it worked great until all of a sudden the bottom dropped out. Right. And then there were a lot of people who were left holding the bag, and they essentially had assets that had become worthless. Um, so remind me again how we even got into this. I feel like I've completely <laughs> taken us a field where we were. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I, I guess the question I'm asking here really is, like, it seems like you're describing a kind of market where it's very common to see essentially bubbles, right? Circumstances right. where artists work is hot for a brief period of time and then it's not hot. And when it's hot, the prices are high. When it's not hot, the prices are low, especially on the secondary market because, you know, that's sort of gauging real demand out there in the marketplace to buy these artists' work. It seems like you'd have to be crazy not to be an art flipper, right? Because yeah. if you're buying into a bubble... Right, you're essentially it's predicated on the idea you're expecting to pop. Why wouldn't I flip it? Right? I mean, I'm so I'm going to get the best price. Right? I mean, if it's hot now, I had to get on a list in order to buy it. They're holding back supply to artificially goose demand, and there's demand unmet demand out there. What kind of yo-yo wouldn't sell it into the secondary market immediately? Right, and and the answer to that is a yo-yo who is interested in maintaining a profile in the traditional art world. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is that if you're if you're one of these quote unquote art flippers, um, you will very quickly get blacklisted at galleries. And that trick that you pulled one time and managed to make some money from, you won't be able to pull it again from that gallery, and you probably won't be able to pull it with any gallery that that gallery is friendly with. So information is, is always at a premium, and again, because who you are as a collector plays such a big role in how the marketplace works, um, you, can, you can make a short-term profit doing something like that, but it becomes increasingly hard to do it again and again uh -huh. and again. Uh-huh. Okay, so let me run that one by me again. What you're telling me is that there is an agreement among market participants to engage or not engage in trade with other potential market participants? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to have to bring that one up with my antitrust colleagues and <laughs> see, see what they think about that. Okay, well, this is, all, this is all very interesting. It sounds like the primary market's kind of a black hole from a buyer's perspective, but the secondary market, the, arc, the, the auction market, that's much more transparent, right? Well, that's what they'll tell you. Um, I think that this is one of the great misconceptions about the art business, that the auction market is naturally more open and more transparent than the private market for artwork. And there are a few reasons that this is not a crazy assumption to make. For instance, um, ostensibly, anybody who has the means can participate in an auction in terms of being a buyer. As long as the auction house has verification that you actually have the assets that they're looking for in terms of net worth or whatever else, um, then you can get a paddle and you can bid. You can also find out all kinds of information about the works ahead of time. Anybody 
who's listening to this could log on to any major auction house's website right now and look up all kinds of info about what works are being sold, what the estimates for them are, um, when they were made, and you can even, in a lot of cases, get pretty detailed backstory on why the work is important or um, where it came from, who the previous buyers were. And then the most important thing is that auction houses post their results publicly afterwards. So this is some of the... the okay, uh, yeah. so just to clarify, when you say auction houses post their results publicly, that implies to me that the primary art market sales are non-public? Right, because every gallery out there is a privately held business. So therefore, they don't have any incentive or compulsion, or, or compulsion, excuse me, to divulge really anything about their business that they don't want okay. to. And because information is at such a premium in the primary market, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of those dealers to tell you how much work is is being offered for, let alone how much it's sold for. Or who's bought one. Or, or who's bought one. How many they've sold or how many they haven't sold. or So any information that the primary market's disclosing then is presumably being disclosed for instrumental reasons. Exactly. Okay. So the secondary market is more transparent, at least in the sense that I know who's buying and selling, and I know what's been bought and sold in the past and for how much. Generally, yes. There are okay. some caveats to that, but I think that takes us too far down the okay. rabbit hole. Um, yes, the, the biggest the biggest thing here is that you can get price information from auction houses, mm-hmm. and um, the company that I work for now, Artnet, I, I work in the news division, but the business that made us a thing in the industry was that we run an auction price database that has results for hundreds of thousands of sales going back to the 80s. And it's a pretty much indispensable resource to people in the auction house sector and really to anybody who's who's buying or selling artwork in mm-hmm. any capacity. Um, I can tell you from one of my days in the gallery business, the first thing that would happen with any collector who had done any of their homework is that they would come in and when we told them the price of a work, if it differentiated at all from what they had seen at auction, they would say, well, the auction prices aren't there. Well, how can you expect me to pay more for this mm-hmm. now when mm-hmm. I could have bought this at auction for $50,000, you're offering it to me for eighty? It yeah. doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this gets us back into that question of how closely primary and, and secondary market sales track, but before we get into that, I'll answer mm-hmm. the, the question that yeah, you yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. actually asked in this case. Um, which is, that all seems very transparent. It all mm-hmm. seems very open. But anybody who really has worked in the auction or in the art industry in general can tell you that the auction business is not anywhere near as transparent as it looks at first. Um, when we were walking over here, I was telling you about how, here's one, one example of this that I really like, is that Sotheby's in the back of their auction catalog will have this little legend of a number of different symbols that appear next to particular artworks in the catalog itself. Mm-hmm. And, and why would Sotheby's put those in there? Well, okay, so Sotheby's is a publicly traded company. Okay. And that's rare in, not just in the art business, but in the even in the auction sector okay. in particular. For instance, Christie's is privately held. Mm-hmm. So they pretty regularly announce not just um, individual auction results, but at the end of the year, another kind of typical 
financial disclosure periods, they will tell you information about their sales. But going back to what we were saying before, they have technically no obligation to do this, and therefore they're only going to tell you things that sound good to them. So <laughs> yeah, be that as it may. Yeah. Um, so, so, so Sotheby's has to put these symbols in, and what kind of stuff do the symbols tell you? So the symbols basically tell you information about financial, um, financial, I guess, uh, realities of some of the works in question. For instance, um, the most simple one is a, a marker, it's usually a circle, I think, it's either a circle or square, but it means guaranteed lot. Now, a guaranteed lot is a lot that already has a buyer who has announced themselves and made a deal to pay a certain amount of money for that artwork. So when you see the estimate range in the catalog, somebody has agreed to pay some amount of money already that the auction house is happy to accept. Um, whether or not it's within the estimate range, I mean, <laughs> generally it is, but you know, there can be dicey things. But um, but the person who has made that bid in advance isn't necessarily going to buy it. It just means that if the work wouldn't naturally get to that point in the auction, then Sotheby's has protected itself the backside by saying, well, we already have a buyer willing to pay this. We know it's not going to go for less than that. It might go for more. Mm -hmm. And if so, that's great. But we at least know that we're, we're at a level that we can live with. Um, but there are also other symbols that kind of get even more fraught. For instance, there's one that tells you whether or not one of the one or more of the bidders in the room has a financial interest in the lot themselves, <laughs> which is really kind of an interesting consideration that you have somebody, a bidder, who is directly involved in determining the price of a work that it benefits them to sell for the maximum amount possible. Okay. That can open up all kinds of very, uh, let's say, ethically questionable practices uh -huh. that are not uncommon. Like, for example? So, I, we're talking a little bit about the, this sort of glossary of terms. Of, uh, and along with, with placement, I would also have to mention protection, uh -huh. protecting artworks. Um, protection is a concept that gallerists talk about a lot. Because the importance of, of auction prices, as we were just talking about, the idea that anyone can look these things up and come in and have some amount of information about the work, ends up playing a big role in perceptions of how successful or how desirable an artist's work may be at any given time. So if you are a, a gallerist who represents an artist, meaning that you have a direct interest in their career doing well, you understand that Part of that means that you can't have their works flop at auction. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, things will come up at auction that you would prefer were not there at all. But if they're there in a lot of cases, well, you have a choice. You can either choose to let things play out as they will, or you can decide that you're going to get involved in trying to make sure that you know how they turn out. <laughs> So what you can do is if you're a gallerist who represents an artist and that artist's work is coming up at auction, you can go ahead and get yourself registered as a bidder. Now, 
that in itself may not be enough if there is no other demand in the room for that kind of thing. First off, before you even went this route, you would call the auction house and you would say, listen, we would really prefer that this not lot come up, this lot not come up. Can we make a deal right now? And this thing just disappears. <laughs> wow. Well, they, so the gallery will like pay the auction house or pay the seller to just take the work back or something? Or no, no, no. They, well, they will they will offer to buy the work. They'll uh-huh. say we'll take this off your hands. Uh, okay. We'll okay. do it right now. We'll do it at a price that we can agree at. Uh-huh. That way, it never has to come up at auction. No one has to know how much it's sold for. Uh huh. And everybody walks away from this happy. Now, if <laughs> everybody being a, you know, everybody except very selective group, of everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. So What's of the course, obligation in this particular case. What's the obligation of the auction house in terms of um, their relationship with the seller? So that's their obligation is to make sure in that case that the consigner of the work is happy, basically. So obviously the the seller of the work wants to get the maximum amount possible. And the way that these deals in particular play out usually is that they happen if there's not a lot of interest in the work heading up to auction. I mean, that's that's what auction houses do. Their, Their job is to kind of stoke the flames of demand in advance and try to make sure that they know going in that there's going to be a certain number of buyers they are going to know who those are potential buyers. They know who those buyers are going to be. They have some idea of how much they're willing to pay. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing their due diligence in advance of the sale and they're just not getting good answers back or answers they're happy with on that front, then if a gallerist comes in and offers them something like that, says, hey, look, we'll, we'll buy this at you know, a fraction of, of what it's being estimated at or close to it maybe, um, to just make sure that this never comes out, then that's a point when the auction house can go back to the consigner and say, look, I got to be honest with you. We thought there was going to be a demand for this kind of thing, but it hasn't really materialized. I've got this deal on the table now. It's under what we expected, but it's not, dra- like, it's not drastically under. Mm-hmm. And if this thing is allowed to actually go onto the block, if we turn this down, you may get nothing. This thing might buy in or in more common parlance, go unsold. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to do that? And the consigner will think it over and either say yes or no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in the event that one of those kinds of deals isn't struck in advance, then the gallerist who represents the artist will register to be a part of the sale. And then they become one of the bidders in the room. And if there is organic interest from other buyers, then the gallerist will simply bid against the people that are in the room until the work gets to a price level that they're satisfied with. And at that point, they can either let the room take over and it's going to go where it's going to go and and the gallery is happy, or the gallery may have to buy the work itself. And if it does that, it's sort of like the the whole idea of, of giving a massive discount to a named collector. It's the idea that your producing a better long-term situation for your artist by paying this money now because you have, again, protected the work from doing poorly at auction, which is one of the few data points that any collector who is interested in their work is going to look at before they consider whether or not to buy it on the primary market. Right. Right. Okay, well, all of this has really started to illuminate for me why the art market is a lot more resilient than a lot of people seem to want to give it credit for. I guess I would say it's a very 
sophisticated in some sense set of market structures with you know a little bit of scare quotes perhaps around the sophisticated there um so I, I I I get that now, but why is it that you think it's going to be so hard? Specifically, why you think it's going to be so hard to disrupt? I mean, people seem to think they have a lot of big ideas about how they're going to change it. Why don't you think those a lot of the, those ideas aren't going to work? Well, there's a couple of different answers to this. Um, one of the one of the primary ones is that what you have to understand about the R market, and I think what's what's emerged over the course of the past several minutes we've been talking about this, is that it's it's really a self-perpetuating system of value. The reason that works are worth amounts of money is because of the buy-in and involvement of people who are a part of traditional art market society for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a would-be disruptor and you don't actually have any kind of ins with those people, it means that you don't have any access to the types of, of market uh, signposts or landmarks that actually bestow value on the work that you're trying to sell. So if that happens, then you're operating outside of the system and you're kind of on your own in terms of how this work is actually going to be valued. You may be able to create a market for it, but if you're doing it, you're doing it from scratch. And it's certainly not going to kind of over time integrate itself into the traditional market. Um, the other element that I think people don't appreciate about the technology and, and art marriage is that when you talk about what has made technology successful, the answers to that question are almost entirely opposite what the answers are to success in the art market. So technology has generally become useful and valuable to people by being um, more open, um, going to scale really quickly, and oftentimes helping to make things cheaper through competition. All of these run directly counter to the way that things work in the art market. Yeah. It's, it's a market that's built on exclusivity. It's built on the idea of restricting information about prices especially. And it's very much just a, a niche market for all the, the talk that we hear about it being a multi-billion dollar industry, which is true. Um, the actual number of people who are involved in it is still very small. And the idea that it is going to, it's a niche market, it's not a mass market. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that you're going to take mass market retail principles enabled by tech and just apply it to this other type of market is just flat out wrong, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this has been incredibly illuminating. Tim, uh, you've given me a whole new perspective on how the art market, on how the art market works. Um, any final thoughts or observations you want to leave the listeners with? Well, that's a big question. Um, I, I guess I would say this: um, if you really want to understand the way that the art market works, then I think that you have to use the same principles that you use in a lot of other markets, which is that you have to understand where the money is coming from and why it's going to the places that it's going. It's really a system of incentives at the end of the day, and that's true of everything. Um, But I think that the idea that the art market is this sort of, or the art world is is a kind of more pure or um, kind of, uh, 
I don't know. Let's let's just say the creative merit is is the main determinant of, of value. Uh, is just frankly not the case. Not to say there isn't a lot of great work being done. There is, and there are a lot of people who are involved in the in the world who are genuinely trying to do good things, genuinely trying to do good work, and people who are doing right by artists and collectors and all that kind of stuff. But there is also a lot of stuff that's happening that is much more financially driven than ever before, and that's something that is going to have both short and long-term effects on the way that the market behaves for, well, as long as I can see it. Right. Well, incentives matter, and follow the money. Words to live by. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. Thank you.